Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. Good to see you this morning as we are in between Christmas and approaching New Year. I'm not sure how you're doing today. This time of year is full of a lot of good things and a lot of joy and celebration. And yet for many people, it can be a hard time. And tragedy strikes any time of the year. Sickness comes any time of the year. Sometimes it's really good to be with family. And sometimes people get a little bit relationally tapped out. Uh, this time of year as well. So regardless of how you're doing, your hope and my hope is what we've just sung about, that through the work of Christ, the wretch and the vilest ones, we come and we trade our filthy rags for the righteousness of Christ, and we stand adopted in his blood. We don't plead a righteousness of our own, but only the righteousness of Christ. And so as we look now to God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help because we need it. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to you as people who are weak and in need, people who are desperate for your spirit to move and work now, people who are desperate for you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we pray, God, that you would overcome any of the burdens, the baggage, the tiredness, the heartbreak, any of that kind of stuff that we brought in here today. We pray you would overcome it, because if you don't, we'll remain there. And we pray also for those of us who are doing well, that you would keep us from good kinds of distractions. We pray that we would be able to track with your word. And ultimately, our prayer is simple, Father, that you would show us Christ from Scripture. We pray that as we behold him, we would be strengthened and confirmed in our faith, that you might even impart faith to those who don't yet trust Christ. And we pray that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold Jesus. And so we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, as I've alluded to, we have just celebrated Christmas. And that's a time of year where we uniquely think about the fact that God became man. And here at CBC, we're pretty unashamed about celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God every week and the life and death and resurrection of the Son of God every week. And so we are going to celebrate today the fact that God the Son became man. The fact that Jesus showed up on earth to announce the coming of the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. That Jesus showed up on earth to bring the gospel of forgiveness and the gospel of salvation to tax collectors and to sinners, to the sick, to the poor, and to the imprisoned. And because of that Last piece, the fact that Jesus brings good news of forgiveness and salvation to even the utmost of sinners because of that reality. He was necessarily at odds often with the religious leaders of his day. He was at odds often with the, the pharisaical or even the legalistic views of religion that would have been common in the first century amongst the Jewish people. In all of this, it's important to note that Jesus upholds the entire law. He upholds the entire law. He explains and applies the law correctly. He explains and applies the law to the hearts of men. And he himself says that he requires a righteousness that is different from the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he requires a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of of the Pharisees. The amazing thing about our Lord is that he, in becoming a man, the one who gave the law, 
put himself under it in order to fulfill it in the place of all of his people. We know that Jesus in his ministry realizes that his church is not founded on the law, but is founded on the confession that he is the Christ. You remember this in the interchange in Matthew's gospel where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, this confession of me as the Christ, I will build my church. Jesus knows that reality. Jesus knows as he comes and ministers on earth that a new covenant has been established in his blood for the sake of his people, to the praise of his Father. So, When Jesus comes, he is not bringing some kind of revolution, some kind of overthrow of the old covenant. That is not at all how we should understand it. He is bringing reformation and renewal that flows from the fact that he has fulfilled the old covenant. That's what he's doing in his earthly ministry. All of this, that kind of framework and understanding is necessary for us if we're going to rightly understand the Bible. And it's necessary and important for us, too, if we're going to understand the gospel accounts in particular. If we're not mindful of all of those things, what Jesus has come to do, what he is aware of, what he has fulfilled, we will have a hard time understanding the gospel accounts. And we find ourselves back in the gospel of Mark today. We've taken a four-week hiatus, a little bit of a break for a topical series on weariness, and now we have made our way back to the gospel of Mark We will be picking up today the 17th of 22 sermons in this wonderful book of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or turn them on to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. While you're turning or finding your way there, let me just set the scene for us because it's been a few weeks since we have been in Mark's gospel. I want to make sure that we're generally aware of what has been going on. By this point in Mark's account, of the life and ministry of Christ, Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem. He has made his way to the holy city. The Passover is about to be celebrated. And Jesus, we know, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, is about to fulfill the Passover in dying for God's people to take away their sin. So he has turned his face to Jerusalem. He has made it here. He has entered the city. He is in the final days of his life. His death is imminent. Remember in the previous section that we considered the last time we were in Mark, Jesus had his authority challenged by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He had a very interesting and brilliant interchange with them. They asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from man or from heaven? They had a hard time answering that question. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you either by what authority I do the things that I do. Remember as well that he was challenged then by the Pharisees and the Herodians. The chief priests and scribes and elders sent some reinforcements to Jesus to try to trap him. And they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Right? They're going to trap him with a question about God and government. And he again brilliantly turns the table on them says, give me a coin. Whose inscription is this? They say it's Caesar's. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And everybody marveled at him. And then he was also challenged, thirdly, by the Sadducees, the kind of liberal theologians of their day, right? Who did not believe in the resurrection. 
And so they come up with this crazy, like conjectured hypothetical situation of a woman who had seven different husbands and children by none of them. All of them died. Finally, she dies. And so they ask, okay, Jesus, if the resurrection's legit, man, whose wife will she be? And he says, the problem is that you don't understand God or scripture. That's your issue. You don't know the Lord. You don't know his word. It's not going to be the same way in the resurrection. You are most definitely wrong. So that is what has happened. Jesus has been challenged by these various groups of religious leaders. And now in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, a scribe, a lawyer, who would have been in conjunction with the Pharisees, a scribe of the Pharisees comes up during this dispute that Jesus is having with the Sadducees about the resurrection. So that's where we are. Let's put our eyes now on the text, beginning in Mark 12 and verse 28, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 44, the end of chapter 12. Listen now to God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen today and every day. So I have three points for us. Every now and then I'm a really good Baptist preacher and I pull off a three-point sermon. It's not often, so you should rejoice in that today if that's your thing. I've got three points with some reflections kind of mixed in. So I'll try to be clear about where I am in terms of points one, two, and three, and some of these interjections and these reflections I will try to make clear to you as well. So we'll begin with point number one. Where else would we start, right? Point number one, what God requires. Point one, what God Requires. We're going to look at verses 28 through 34 together for just a few moments. Put your eyes back on verse 28. 
The scribe that comes to Jesus saw that Jesus answered the Sadducees well. And so we're told that having seen that, he too wanted to ask Jesus a question. So it seems that compared to some of the other questioners of Christ, at least, that he is at least somewhat sincere. He wants to ask a legitimate question of Jesus. The text doesn't tell us that he's trying to trap Christ. So in verses 29 through 31, Jesus gives him a very straightforward response. Jesus says this, The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, known as the Shema, which in Hebrew means hear. Hear, O Israel, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he starts there, and then Jesus, in verse 30, gives the great overarching covenant demand from Deuteronomy 6, 5. It goes this way. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he attaches a second commandment, one that flows out of the first, to it in verse 31. This is an allusion, a citation of Leviticus 19.18. The second is this, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So this is the most important commandment and the second that's like it. This is contained in in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel also. Jesus answers this question. What is the most important and greatest commandment? And he answers this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And there's a second that's like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells us that those two great commandments, the great one and the second that's like it, on those depend all the law and the prophets, namely the Old Testament. Those two commandments, in that sense, sum up God's revelation in the Old Testament. We could also say that those two commandments are a great summary of the entire law of God. If we think about the Ten Commandments, oftentimes through history, people have talked about the two tables of the law, the two tables of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 through 4, about how we relate to God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You will not make an image and bow down to it. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? That's how we relate to God. And then Commandments 5 through 10, how we relate to one another. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet what your neighbor has, how we relate to neighbor. So in that sense, this first great commandment and the second like unto it are a great summary of God's moral law given to us in the Ten Commandments. So after this answer is given by Jesus, the scribe is going to respond to Christ, beginning in verse 32. He agrees with what Jesus has said. He affirms what Christ has said. He says, teacher, you're right. You're right. You have truly said that God is one and that there is no other besides him. And verse 33, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more. It's much more important. It's the point. It's a bigger deal than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
So he agrees with what Christ has said. He understands that to love God wholly all the time and to love neighbor as yourself is what God really requires. To answer, in short, what does the Lord require of human beings? That's it. Love him completely with your whole self all the time and love your neighbor as yourself always. There we have it. The scribe understands that that is what God requires over and against any kind of system of offerings and sacrifices, over and against any kind of list of do's and don'ts and all the rest. This is what God requires at the heart of the matter. When the scribe alludes to the fact that these things are what God desires more than offerings and sacrifices, the scribe is alluding to a number of passages in the Old Testament where God says the exact same thing. He's alluding to 1 Samuel 15. Psalm 40, Hosea chapter 6, where God is clear. I desire these things, right? Devotion, love, mercy, all of that. More than I desire sacrifice. God had been clear about all of these things throughout the entire Old Testament. So here's the thing. It's possible for someone to think that they're doing well at following the Lord if it's all about a system of sacrifices. It's possible to think that you're doing well if it's about a a system of offerings. I do the sacrifices, I give the offerings, I'm doing well there. Okay, check. It's possible to think that one is doing well at following the Lord if there's a list of things to do and a list of things to abstain from. Okay, I can check these things off. I can sort of check these things off too and that I haven't done those. But if what God requires is to love him completely with all of ourselves all the time and to love our neighbors as ourselves all the time, that's an entirely different matter. Entirely. We've talked about this many times here at CBC. If we ever think that we are doing a lot, like to the point where God would look at us and be impressed with what we're doing. If we ever think, man, alive, I am just absolutely crushing this thing called the Christian life. Crushing it, man. Like people need to just do what I'm doing and they'd be doing great. If we ever think like that, all we need to do is think to what God has revealed to us in his word about the first and greatest commandment and the second that's like unto it. How are you doing loving God with all of yourself all the time? How are you doing loving your neighbor as yourself all the time? So you're going through the list, right? And you're thinking about the the Ten Commandments that you've been taught. And it's good that you know the Ten Commandments. And you're thinking, okay, haven't murdered anybody. Check. Now, Jesus says that anger is like killing someone. So maybe that's not good. But okay, let me move on to another one. I haven't committed adultery. Okay, and I'm, I'm lustful, but my lust has been doing a little bit better lately. So I feel decent about that one. And I've been actually doing pretty well at not coveting what my neighbor has. And I'm learning to be more content. So I'm doing okay there. But what about loving God with all that I am all the time? Oh, I don't know that I'm doing well at that. What about loving my neighbor as myself all the time? I don't know that I'm doing well with that. Nothing will crush us like the full weight of God's law dumped on our consciences with these things in view. Love God with all you are all the time and love your neighbor as yourself all the time. Every human being who has ever lived will stand and look at that and say, I ain't got it, man. 
I don't meet the standard. Sinclair Ferguson on Christ's response says this, Jesus' answer underlined the fact that any man's attempt to measure himself against the law for his own reassurance is bound to lead to disaster. Because the very first law requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being, and it carries with it a clear implication that we love our neighbors as ourselves. The law, in its first and greatest use, undoes us. It crushes us. It's a mirror that we evaluate ourselves in front of, and we know that we do not meet God's righteous requirements. Let's turn our eyes, though, to verse 34. It's very interesting how Jesus then responds to the scribe. He tells the scribe, he sees that the scribe answers wisely, right? Because the scribe seems to legitimately understand some stuff. So he sees that he answers wisely. He says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Notice he doesn't say you're in. He says you're not far. So we've got to wrestle with what that means. What's that mean? You're not far. So this is true, perhaps, in that this man, as I've already alluded to, doesn't seem as hard-hearted as some of his peers. But even more so, it seems true because he seems to legitimately understand what God requires. He doesn't seem to have missed the point of the law and the sacrificial system in the same way that some of his peers and friends have. But Jesus sends this lawyer home with something absolutely massive to ponder. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far, but you're not in. You're not far, but you're not in. I would imagine, I mean, we don't know what this man felt or thought having heard that response to Christ. We don't ever hear of him again. We don't know. But I would imagine if I got that response, I would be, somewhat perplexed by that. You're not far. The point, this is huge for us, and even trying to piece this passage together and think about what Christ is doing. The point of understanding what God requires in his law is that we would be driven to Christ. It's that we would be driven away from ourselves to the Savior who has fulfilled the law for God's people. So in one sense, I mean, Christ could look at this man and say, you understand what God requires. You understand the law and its demands. You are near the kingdom of God. But if you trust me, you're in. Look where Mark goes immediately following this. Immediately following this interchange, where does Mark go? He goes right to Christ and his identity again as the long-predicted son of David, the Messiah. It's not coincidental in how the gospel writers arrange their material. So immediately, we're in, we're in the middle of this talk of like, what are the greatest commandments and what does God really require? And now we go to Psalm 110 a psalm written by David about the Christ, and we're going to think about the identity of the Savior. So that brings us now to point number two. If point number one is what God requires, point number two is the way of salvation. Point number two, the way of salvation. We're going to look at verses 35 and 37 together for a few moments. In these verses, 
Jesus, we see in verse 35, is teaching in the temple. He posits a question to his audience about the identity of the Christ, about the identity of the Messiah. How can the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? Which he is, by the way, right? I mean, the Christ is David's son. So how can the scribes say this? Jesus goes on, because David himself in the Holy Spirit, so lest we get that confused, Jesus is looking at the Psalms as inspired by the Holy Spirit and authoritative. He's acknowledging David as the author. And he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit says this, the Lord, as in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, verse 37, calls the Messiah, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, we see. Jesus asks, he is the son of David, the Christ is, yet he is David's Lord. How can this be? Friends, this is only true if the Christ has existed before David and then would also come after him. He's existed before David and he comes after David. David in the psalm, in Psalm 110, is speaking in the present tense, right? The Lord says to my Lord. So David's Lord is with the Lord, and the Lord says to him, sit down at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. His Lord is in heaven with Yahweh. And so David's Lord was the only way that this works, and Jesus knows what he's doing. David's Lord was the eternal Son of God, preexistent with the Father and the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That guy, that person. The Christ would become David's son when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb, what we just celebrated a few days ago. He would then be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So Jesus, in citing this psalm about himself, is saying about himself that he is the Christ, he is the anointed mediator who fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We just sung about it. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. He is the greater Moses, the prophetic office. He is the greater priest. He's greater than Aaron. He is the greater David who would come, the king of God's people. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because he himself is truly God and truly man. The only being in the universe who is that. The perfect mediator between God and men. The long expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord, and the forever high priest of God's people after the order of Melchizedek. We read that earlier today in Psalm 110 and verse 4. What's all that about? Eventually, we're going to preach our way through the book of Hebrews, and I can't wait. It is one of the greatest books in all Scripture to try to understand the Bible and how it hangs together. With respect to Melchizedek, it's a big name. He's an interesting figure. He appears in the book of Genesis, and then he's gone. And then the writer of the Hebrews picks him up, He is the king of 
peace, right? The king of Salem. And we're told in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That he once and for all time made a sacrifice that was sufficient to atone for the sins of God's people. And he sat down because the work is done. Redemption is over. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And therefore we draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Jesus is the great high priest of God's people. He is saying these things about himself, inciting Psalm 110 about his own identity. It's important that we understand, like when we think about how to understand scripture, and when we think about how to wrestle with what's in Mark chapter 12, all of this about Jesus's identity, about him being the Christ, the reference to Psalm 110, which was undisputedly about the Messiah, It's inserted into this section where Jesus has just been very clear about what God requires and he is about to warn people about false religion. So we just considered what God requires. We're going to think about false religion, like upside down religion. In the middle of that is this. Jesus is the Christ, the way of salvation. That is no accident in how Mark has arranged his gospel account. So at this point, I want to go on a a couple of just kind of meditations with you, just some brief reflections related to things that we've already considered before we make our way to point number three. So first I want us to reflect for just a few minutes on sacrifices and the sacrificial system. Because we've thought about it in verse 33, the scribe brings it up about how what God really requires in terms of love for him and love for neighbor is more important than all sacrifices. So what was the point? of the sacrificial system given by God? It's a huge question to answer biblically. So I'm not going to bury the lead. I'm just going to go ahead and answer it, and then we'll talk about it. What was the point of the sacrificial system? Ultimately, it was to point God's people to the Christ, who would satisfy God in terms of God's wrath against their sin, and who would atone for the sin of God's people. That's why the sacrificial system was implemented. The people were to make sacrifices all the time because of their sin. So these regular sacrifices were to teach the people of their sinfulness and their constant need for atonement, their constant need for forgiveness, their constant need for propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against them. Over and over and over and over and over again, they were going to sacrifices, performing them or coming from them. God was incessantly teaching them of their sin and their need for atonement. Think of the Passover. Why is the Passover a thing? Why is it in the Bible? It's because Christ would come, not the other way around. It's not like, oh, let's reverse engineer this. The Passover happened, so now let's fit Jesus into that. No, the Passover exists because the Lamb of God would come who would fulfill it. Right, So God, in history, in time and space, as he is saving his people, they're in bondage in Egypt. He sends plagues. He's going to free them from slavery. The last and great plague, he's going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. The only way that your firstborn won't be killed is if you slay a spotless, unblemished lamb, and you put the blood on your doorposts, and the Lord says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over the house. 
What's that about? It's about the Passover lamb named Jesus who would come and lay his life down for his sheep. The spotless, unblemished sacrifice that God requires would be made once and for all time on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? Described in Leviticus 16. What's that about? Why is that a thing? It's because Jesus would come. Right? So what happened on that day? There were sacrifices made. There was a sin offering, right? There were two animals, a sin offering. Okay, sin is atoned for. But there was a second animal known as the scapegoat, right? Where the priest would take his hands and place upon that animal the sins of God's people and send that animal into the wilderness, taking the sins of God's people away. What's going on? It's because Christ would come. He would sacrifice himself and make atonement for God's people and their sin. He would take their sin in his body on the tree and suffer, and he would remove the sin of God's people from us as far as the east is from the west. That's why it's in the scripture, because Christ would come. All of this was to point God's people to the one who would fulfill all of these things. It was to point God's people to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, to the scapegoat who would bear their sins and take their sins away from them. That's what the sacrificial system was about. But what had it become? What had it become? It had become something that had been, you know, codified. And not to impugn people's motivations, but here's how the thinking goes. It's like, okay, well, God requires sacrifices and he prescribes them a certain way. And we want to make sure that we're doing it right. And so we're going to, we're going to make a bunch of rules and procedures and protocol and system. But in doing this, the sacrifices had become an end unto themselves. It had become something that one did in order to have favor with God is that the sacrifices themselves were the point. The whole thing in that sense had become an exercise in missing the point. Which is why God over and over and over again reminds his people of what he really desires from them. The people acted as though the sacrifices and doing them rightly and doing them diligently were the point, but they were never the point. Now, no doubt, don't want to be misunderstood here, a faithful Jew, a child of promise, right, circumcised of heart, would have made appropriate sacrifices, no doubt. They would have been doing it. They would have done the sacrifices that the Lord commanded. But he or she would have understood something of what was really going on. That I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law and I need someone to atone for my sin and I need someone to satisfy the wrath of God against my sin. And God has promised one who will come and do that. Trusting the promises of God realized in Messiah is how God's people have always been saved. Second, brief reflection. This text is a great illustration of what we might referred to as the distinction between law and gospel. The distinction between law and gospel. So let's think about that for just a moment. There is always a tendency, always has been a tendency, to turn the gospel into a new kind of law. Do this and live, right? Proper distinction needs to be maintained between law and gospel. So when we think about law, 
The law proceeds from God's holiness. It is his holy and wise revealed will. It addresses all people everywhere from all time. It demands perfect righteousness. It offers eternal life through works. And it condemns fallen man. It increases. Think about the language of the New Testament. It increases trespasses. It confirms our condemnation. It's interesting that part of the antidote to legalism is a right and true understanding of God's law and what it really requires. That's ironic, right? A right and true understanding of God's law and what it really requires is part of the antidote to legalism. The way that Jesus speaks over and over again makes this clear. He is constantly blowing up moralistic thinking and legalistic thinking because he dumps the full weight of the law on people. They think they're trusting in themselves, that they're doing it, and he's like, you're not. Here's the reality. You're not. See, that kind of thinking, it's kind of it's crazy, right, that like a right understanding of the law would kill the legal spirit. It does, though. Because the only way that legalism or moralism make any sense at all is if the law has been so dumbed down and relativized that we actually think we can do it. Now, gospel as opposed to law. Not opposed, I should say a distinction from the law because they are cohesive in the way that they hang together, yet they're distinct. The gospel proceeds from God's grace in perfect conjunction with his holiness. It addresses, rather than all people, the gospel addresses those who hear. The gospel grants perfect righteousness on the basis of faith. The gospel absolves of sin. The gospel produces good works done in faith. Friends, the law finds its end in Christ. That's Romans 10. Christ is the end of the law, right, for righteousness. Jesus sets believers free from the curse of the law, as we sung earlier, so that we might walk by the Spirit and delight in God's law in our inner man. That's what the gospel does. The call of the gospel, this is important, the call of the gospel does not proceed from law and call people to works. The gospel proceeds and flows out of grace and invites people to faith. And as we've said many times, if you want a short, kind of punchy way to think about law and gospel, the law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done it. Now live in him. A right understanding, brothers and sisters, of law and gospel is a safeguard against moralistic and legalistic religion. Some of this kind of upside down spirituality that Jesus is going to point out. It keeps us from missing the point of what's going on in God's word. So that brings us now to point number three. We're making our way back to the text. Point number three, we're going to look at verses 38 through the end of the chapter. I've got a heading here, warnings against upside-down religion. Warnings against upside-down religion. So on the whole, I mean, we've considered this throughout Mark's gospel, the religion of the scribes and Pharisees, though conservative and well-intentioned, had plenty of grace in it in terms of a God-wrought righteousness, right? It was definitely a system, though, tethered to offerings and sacrifices and 
lists of things to do and abstain from. It's a codified life. So in verses 38 to 40, Jesus warns his hearers about the scribes, the scribes of the Pharisees. Theirs is a religion. He's going to talk about them. Theirs is a religion that looks good. It looks solid. It looks impressive, right, from the outside. They're adorned. You see this in long robes. It would have been a status thing, right, in that context. A sign of respect, authority, robes. They have these public greetings and recognition in the marketplace. It's a big deal. They like those, he says. They have the best seats in the synagogues, a place of honor in the worship of God, right? They're elevated in that sense. They have places of honor as well at feasts. It looks good. It looks right. It looks pious. It looks all of those things. But then Jesus in verse 40 says, you know what? The issue is it's all a sham. It's not legit. In reality, these men prey on people and they take advantage of them. They devour widows' houses. Because in that day, it would have not been appropriate for the scribes to be paid directly for what they did. So they often would take advantage of the generosity of people, right? And that's what he's talking about. They would devour widows' houses in particular. God cares about widows and orphans and sojourners, right? The weak, those who need to be protected, these scribes are preying on them. And he even says, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. So their prayers and presumably some of their other religious exercises are for show. In verses 41 through 44, Jesus again is going to sort of turn things upside down, and demonstrate how things aren't as they seem. They're not as they appear. So there are a lot of rich people. Verse 41, we see this. Jesus sits down opposite the treasury. He's watching people put offerings in the offering box, you know, money for the temple service and a lot of rich people putting in a lot of money. Then verse 42, a poor widow comes and puts in a very small amount of money. And so Jesus in verse 43 calls his disciples to himself and explains what's really going on. He says, look, in reality, this widow has actually given a lot more than anybody else. Now, the reason he has to explain this is because to anyone, naturally, you would look at the large gifts and be impressed. The large gift is a bigger deal. This person is giving more objectively. And it's not as impressive as the tiny one. What's the point of all of this? Jesus is saying that this entire system of which the scribes and this kind of offering business and all that is a part, this entire system is upside down. So just a closing reflection for us on upside down and right side up religion. So upside down and right side up religion. So upside down religion or upside down spirituality or whatever you want to call it, it, just describe it for me. It looks really good from the outside. It's strong in its appearance. It looks put together. It's polished. It appears pious, maybe. It is fit, most certainly, for public consumption because that's its primary concern. It's based on teaching the tradition of men as doctrine. I thought about that in Mark chapter 7. 
It's based on keeping the rules, not admitting failure. Right? It's based on a projection of strength, not acknowledging weakness. It's based on living above the dirtiness that other sinners live in, not on the confession of a heart that is prone to wonder. It is based on confidence in oneself, not in Christ. That's upside-down religion. Now, right-side-up religion is all about the sufficiency of Jesus. Right-side-up religion is founded upon and based upon the sufficiency of Christ. It is based upon and grounded in the reality that he's done everything that's required. He is the ground of our confidence. We are never that. As much encouragement as we might take from our growth and our transformation, we never look to it ultimately. It's only Christ, always and forever. Right? When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Right? That's how it happens. It's grounded upon, right-side-up religion is grounded upon the fact that Jesus has made atonement and propitiation for all of our sin. All of our sin. He has provided absolution, which is just a big word. To be absolved is to be forgiven of transgression. Sin is a massive deal. It's cosmic treason. It's the worst thing in the world. So when we talk about forgiveness of sin, it's not as though sin is little and it's not a big deal for God to just say, oh, you're forgiven. Sin is terrible, beyond comprehension. And the glory and the astonishing fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are legitimately absolved of all sin in Christ. We are forgiven. On the basis of Scripture, we can look at one another and say, brother, sister, as you're looking to Christ and trusting in Him, you are forgiven of all your sin. We thought about this recently. Like guilt and shame are prevalent everywhere in the world. Everywhere. And the church of Jesus Christ, because we have the gospel of Christ, is the only place where mercy and grace and absolution exist. Come and drink of the water of life without payment. That's the message. My now six-year-old son recently said to me, we were eating breakfast together. I was getting him ready for school like we always do. And I was sitting down with him. He was eating his breakfast. I was eating a little bit. And we talk. And he looks at me, just unsolicited, unprompted. This sweet time. He, he goes, Dad, Jesus took all of our sins. And he's never going to give them back. And I was like, bro, that'll preach, man. Jesus took all of our sins and he's never going to give them back. That is good news. Every sin that we've ever committed or will commit, all of our corruption that we inherited from our first parents, Jesus really took it, atoned for it, satisfied for it, and we are absolved and we are free in Christ by faith. From the mouths of babes, right? The good word often comes. It's important, friends, 
all of this that I've just been talking about. Here's an important facet of right-side-up religion. It entails sin-confessing, heart-rending repentance in an ongoing manner. It involves and entails sin-confessing, heart-rending repentance in an ongoing manner. Repentance is not a one-time deal. It is a constant posture of life. Why? Because we are mindful biblically that though we have been counted righteous in Christ, we still struggle against our corruption. And we, because of that corruption, are a bunch of sin-sick wretches who need forgiveness. And so we confess sin all the time. We repent of sin all the time. Such is the life of the church. We are all debtors to mercy. I could say a lot about what I'm about to mention, but it's, it's remarkable what an understanding of these things, what we've just been talking about, what an understanding of these things will produce in a church. The longer that I'm in the position that I'm in, if somebody were to ask me, what do you think the most important thing is for the culture of a church? I think my answer as I stand here today would be to instill in the people, that includes you as a pastor, to instill in all of us by God's word, an understanding of our absolute desperate need for Christ. When that happens, people's hearts get knitted together. There is a supernatural Holy Spirit wrought bond produced when a group of people collectively understand their desperate need for Jesus. It creates a community of people in which people are honest about sin. Honest about sin. Imagine that, right? We can say what's real in here, in here. And sin in that kind of a context can actually be talked about it can be confronted and it can be corrected legitimately because it's there. And in the midst of that confrontation and correction, there is at the same time compassion and love and gentleness. And the church becomes, in one sense, a haven for sinners, not to be coddled in sin, but to look to Christ together as we lock arms on this pilgrimage toward the heavenly city. Back quickly to Jesus. Upside, or excuse me, right side up religion is based on the fact that Jesus has given to us by faith his perfect righteousness. And that means that all of the good works that he did and all of the ways he obeyed God's word and all of the ways that he did the law is counted to you as though you actually did that. That's amazing. It's not, it's, not, oh, it's not just this ethereal general like I'm counted righteous. It's like, no. It's the actual account of Christ is credited to you, a sinner. It's as though I really did it. So to be justified in Christ means it's as though I never had any sin. It's as though I never did sin. And it's as though I have actually done all of the holy, obedient, righteous acts of Christ. Which is why our standing before the Lord is as permanently and unshakably solid and righteous as it can be because our standing is grounded in the righteousness of Christ himself. In Jesus we stand now and in the future.
in Jesus, we have peace with God now and forever. He has secured our sanctification. We will be conformed to his image. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The good work that's been begun in us will be completed because of Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2 that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we will walk in those good works that have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. I'm always mindful of 1 Corinthians 1.30 where Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Like Christ is all. Jesus, in addition to all of this, intercedes for us even now. We will be saved to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. He came the first time to deal with sin and he will come again to get us. It's a simple message, really. He came and he gave his life for us. He did what we could never do in fulfilling God's law. He rose from the dead so that we might too. He sits at the right hand of God now, interceding for us, pleading the merits of his blood for us. The Father delights in what he has done and delights in saving us. And Jesus is going to come back. His return is imminent. And he will gather his people. We will be raised imperishable. We will be with Jesus forever where he is. We will see him as he is forever. And in him, joy will be ours forevermore. Because in him, our heart has found its treasure. So friends, all of that that we just thought about for several minutes now is right side up religion. Grounded in Christ looking to Christ always, living in Christ, doing the good works that we have been created to do, not for merit, for God's honor and for the good of neighbor. Right side up religion is about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So friends, with all that being said, as we have now received Christ in the word of God, we will turn our attention to the Lord's table in just a moment, but before we do, let's pray. Let's pray for ourselves as we will come to Christ in faith at this table in just a moment. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now with our hearts full of thanksgiving and gratitude and praise for what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you for your holiness and your righteousness, that your law demands a righteous standard greater than any standard in the world. And that everything that you require in your law, you have granted in your gospel through your son. We praise you and thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to minister to us by your spirit. As we have considered Jesus from your word, we will now come to the table that he instituted. We will come in faith to feed on the merits of Christ, to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. We are coming to participate in the body and the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant poured out for us. So we pray, Father, as we come as sinners turning from our sin and looking to Jesus, that you would strengthen, sustain, and confirm our faith. We pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be stirred up by what we have done here today toward love and good works. We pray that we would increasingly love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor 
as ourselves. We pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.